I want to give you just a brief understanding of the approach we're going to be taking today in this sermon. If you've been to my home up in Forks, um, you'll know we have a really steep, it's short, but it's steep driveway. And you've got to take, of course, a 90-degree turn off the street to get into it. So you can't just get barreling down the road and then turn, up, turn into the driveway and make it up in the winter. And when it's really, really icy, some of the times I have a really heavy Ford excursion. We're a, we're a camping family, and so we were at least. We're kind of phasing out. So I, I drive that, and sometimes that thing is so heavy, and when the driveway is so icy, I can't make it up. Not in two-wheel drive. So I back down to the bottom of the driveway, Put it in four-wheel drive. Sometimes, if it's extraordinarily icy, i got to put it in four-by-four four low. Normally, four-wheel four drive high could do it, and then I could just make my way up the driveway. Well, that's, if you can get that mental image, then that's exactly what I'm doing in this message. We're on our way to home base in this series. After today, two more. But in order for us to get there, with an understanding of the purpose of Jonah, I'm going to back down the driveway, I'm going to put it in four-wheel drive, and we're going to chew our way up it. So that doesn't mean, I don't think at least, you, you'll have to be the judge, I don't think that means you're in for a really boring sermon, hopefully. And if you are, well, life is kind of boring at times, right? So we can handle it. Hopefully it's not going to be boring. Now listen, here's what I think it's going to be. You're going to chew your way to, towards the finish of Jonah with a better understanding. So let's, let's grab our minds. You could do this. Don't get on your phones to look at Facebook. Try to stop doing that. Don't be texting people. Oh my goodness, I wish I was anywhere. But here, let's really focus on what I'm going to present and teach to you today in this sermon. And let's see what the Lord can teach us. And then we're going to really get to the end of this book. And I hope we're going to get the meaning of the book impressed on us. Last summer, a lot of us went on a Restoring Hope Ministries bike tour. Below Pittsburgh, we started, made it all the way back to Easton. Allegheny Trail, some of the CNO towpath streets. I mean, it was a great tour. But one of, the, one of the days, several of them in fact, but one of them in particular, we stopped at a campground. And that campground had a really beautiful lake. And it wasn't very long before a lot of us got into the water, a lot of us got into the lake, and we began having all of these competitions, sort of a water Olympics. One of them was to see who could swim the furthest underwater in one breath. I have contacts. I've had them since I was 18. So I can't open my eyes underwater. And I discovered in that event that I have no ability, zero ability to swim straight if I cannot see where I'm going. I gave it an heroic effort and I ended up way, maybe 20 yards to the right. I mean, it was ridiculously off target. I don't know, I just can't swim straight if I cannot see where I'm going. Now listen to this, focus determines direction. Focus determines direction. Now you're going to hold on to that, but we're going to see that all the way through this sermon. Similarly, and a lot of you are really avid, like almost like crazy, like something in your mind is off a little bit, race car fans. I personally don't find watching race cars go around the same direction 
Over and over, very exciting. Now, who's with me on that one? Who are the mentally deranged ones that actually like racing? All right. It's always the minority. There's something wrong with them. We need to pray for them. But race car drivers, you know what they're taught? They're taught to never look at the wall on the right. They're taught that. Bikers, I'm going to tell you, motorcycle riders, of which I am one, motorcycle riders are taught when they're coming into a curve, never look into the curve. You look where you exit your curve. Mountain bikers, of which I am one, are always taught, do not look at the obstacle in front of you in that path because focus determines direction. You look at the wall, you're going to hit it. You look at the curve, you're going to go off of it. You look at the rock in the path, you're going to find almost without fail that your front tire is going to run into it. Focus determines direction. And that same principle, I'm going to show you it briefly before we really get going, is true spiritually in our lives. Now listen, this is the first most important thing I'm going to tell you. Focus determines directions, your direction spiritually. Let me prove it to you. And I'm going to read this from the messages paraphrase, only because I really like how it words this. Hebrews chapter 12, 2. Keep your eyes on Jesus, focus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. Focus determines direction. Christian brother and sister, keep your eyes on Jesus. You get your eyes off Jesus, and your life is going to get off. And if we focus our eyes on ourselves, now here's the phrase you're going to hear. In self-directed living, that's where you live for your glory, live for your honor, live for your comfort, live for your passions, live for your satisfaction. If you begin to live with your eyes on you and you begin to live self-directedly, you're going to inevitably hit the wall to your right. You're going to run off the curve in the race of life. You're going to hit the rock in the middle of the path of life. That's the way it works. Now, God knows this. Now, what I'm doing in this sermon, a little bit differently than I normally preach, it's more of a conversation. Because to me right now, I'm, I wish we could do this. I'm picturing you and I just in my front room, my living room. There it would be interactive. We could encourage each other. We could speak truth to each other. That would be my preference. But I've got the stage, and I can only go this way with it. You can come up and ask afterwards or tell me things afterwards. But what I'm doing is just conversation. I'm pretending you're, you're in my living room, and I'm just letting you know, here's my heart. Here's what I think God is teaching us in the book of Jonah. Over and over and over. Let's just look at me, Tim Ackley, for a moment. Over and over in my life, God rescues me from self-directed living. It is a trap that I continually fall into. I don't even know that I'm living for me until God opens my eyes. I don't even know just how much I want my own honor and my own glory and my own way and my own control and my own management of my life until God somehow opens my life to it. Over and over, he rescues us. You know, a lot of us are reading Tim Keller's book, prayer. I'd encourage you to get it. I think it's phenomenally 
impacting. And in that book, in the first chapter, he quotes Flannery O'Connor. She was a Catholic writer that had a deep and abiding relationship with Christ. And in that book, O'Connor writes, or rather in Keller's book, he quotes her from her prayer journal, and she wrote this. Very simple, ready, very quick. You can see it on the screen. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. That's self-directed living. That's when your eyes get on yourself. That's the selfishness that's at the root of that chronic conflict in your marriage. You know what I'm talking about, right? That selfishness is the evidence you've got your eyes on you. It's there, it's that, that self-directed living, that selfishness. Listen, you all can understand this. It's there in your irritability. It's there in our depression. It's there in our anxiety. It's there in our judgmentalism, our despair, our hopelessness, our anger. Listen, they're all byproducts of a self-focused, self-directed life. And God has to continually rescue us from that see selfishness here's what it does it elevates our goals it elevates our own happiness to the highest level of importance and it makes servants of everybody in our life they exist then to bring us our goals to make us happy to make us satisfied and whole See, selfishness, let's, let's now expand it outward to a church size. Selfishness is often why the church is just so ineffective in the world for Christ. It's because we're so focused on ourselves. Simply put, here, here's how it looks at the church level. Simply put, we get so busy with our own lives or we're so afraid of moving toward other people, risking rejection, that we're all, for all intents and purposes, completely off mission. All right, it is, it is incredibly difficult. I'm telling you from experience, it is incredibly difficult to keep our eyes on Christ and to live out this mission of redemption. It is so hard. We are so distracted by the world. And then by contrast, it is incredibly easy to let your eyes lock on yourself, to let my eyes lock on myself, and one of the, one of the fast tracks, the greased rails to self-directed living. You ready? Here it is, what we're going to see in Jonah. It's success. When you experience success, it can make it so easy to just fall into self-directed living, which is what we're calling selfishness. Jonah, listen to this, Jonah made it to the proverbial top of the ladder. He was the prophet, I'm quoting the text of scripture, all the national fame that came with being the, the prophet. I mean, this is what he did. He correctly foretold 
that Israel would recover their northern properties that Syria and Assyria, two different nations, had stolen from them through warfare and conquest. Jonah prophesied, he foretold, that God was going to give it back to them. So in faith, go out and fight for it. The Israelites went out and fought for it. They got the land back, and land was everything to Israel. And it made Jonah propelled to stardom. It literally birthed a star out of a man. But stardom can bring a pride that believes that the self, now listen, you got to hear this, it brings a pride, and we all struggle with this, so we got to really be alert to this, you got to hear this, it brings a pride that really begins to convince the self that it knows better than God how life should live. Listen, that's what your pride is doing, friends. That's what my pride is doing. You can't possibly for a second think that it's innocuous, that it just stays self-contained in your heart. Listen, it pollutes you vertically and it impacts you horizontally. And the way that it pollutes you vertically is, God, I don't really want you ruling my life completely, so let me get up on that throne and share the seat with you. And if you don't like that, then why don't you just get off the throne and I'll manage my life because I think I could do it better. That's where pride is going to take you. Over and over in the Word of God, that's where we see pride taking people. And the signs of a self-directed, pride-filled life are anger, defiance, accusation, bitterness, frustration, Jonah had every one of them. But he's about to learn the second most important thing that I'm going to tell you today, and here it is on the screen. The selfish life is always on a collision course with a sovereign, loving God. Can I encourage you, that's really pretty easy to memorize, can I encourage you to maybe try to commit that one to memory? The selfish life is always on a collision course with a sovereign, loving God. The two are going to hit. And God will win. And he will never adjust his plan to ours. Or they were, listen, if God were to adjust his plan to ours, that would mean his plans result as less perfect. Because he is perfect in all that he does. His plans, then, are better than ours. And if he adjusts his plans to ours, and does what we want him to do, what we pray frantically that he would do, and what we get angry that he doesn't do, and if he adjusts his plan to ours, then they're always going to be less than the best. Instead, what the sovereign, loving God is going to do, and this is the third most important thing I'm going to tell you. i got like 400 more most important things. Here's the third most important thing I'm going to tell you. This is huge. Ready? This is massive. This is the whole skeletal framework of this message. He will work in you. He will work in me with his grace. And he will help you step off the throne and back to a place of worship. Let me say that a little bit differently. You ready? I want you to picture this. Gentlemen, I want you to picture helping the woman that you love down a set of steep steps and you extend your hand 
and you hold hers and you walk her down, ready to grab her if she fails, but leading her to the bottom. That is what God will do. That is what a sovereign, loving God will do when we elevate ourselves in self-directed, pride-filled, selfish hearts. He will begin to work in you and he'll begin to work in me and all of a sudden his grace is like the hand that extends from that gentleman to grab yours and he will lead you off the throne. Sometimes he's going to tug. Sometimes he's going to have to do a little bit even harder. Sometimes he's going to give you a whole lot of reason that you shouldn't be on that throne. He's going to make it very, very uncomfortable. You're going to see it in Jonah next week. But he will lead you off that throne. He's going to put you back at the base of it where you and I belong, where we are his servants and we live to serve him which is by the way the word worship it means to serve we saw last time that would be two weeks ago that God will often do this get us off the throne by exposing our hearts with powerful questions to expose what we're entirely unaware of, but whatever, whatever he's exposing, listen, it's robbing you of your life. It's robbing you of your happiness. I, I, I can't tell you how many people I talk to who come to me because they're really not happy, they're really not full of joy, they're really full of anxiety, they're full of anger and bitterness and confusion, and God never wants to bring fog into that. He never wants to... He never wants to make his will ambiguous or hard to understand. Listen, that's not what God does. God wants to make his will known to his children. And God wants to blow the fog away. And he wants to help walk you into righteous living that is effective for him. And when he's exposing something that's in your heart, listen, please believe this. Even if you're doubting it, at least put it into the hemisphere of your thinking and consider it. If God is exposing something in your life, listen, it's because it's robbing you of happiness. It's robbing you of joy. It's robbing you of life. That's why he's exposing it. And he begins to do this in verse 4. Now, Jonah chapter 4, if you can open your Bibles, make sure you got them open. He does this in, in verse 4. He says to Jonah, he actually asks, asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? Here's it rephrased a little bit. Do you really have a good, right, and true reason for your anger, Jonah? Now, if you're married, you may have had your spouse at one time or another come up to you wonderfully and beautifully and say, why are you upset with me? That's a question that is designed to go down in your heart and detonate. And listen, you'll know when it detonates because men, here's what we typically do, we make excuses or we get defensive. That's the way we guard ourselves from the power of our wives' words and the question but that question's intended to take you down in your heart why are you upset at me and take you down in your heart and bring it up to the surface so that you can see now listen men if you're like me so that you can see in most cases there's really not a good reason there's really not something that legitimate 
In fact, really, it's usually me more than Denise. That's usually the, the reason when I get angry, that's usually the end game. It's me again, not Denise. But I want to punish her with my anger until you get to stew in that anger. And all it is is a manipulative control technique to make that person become the one that you demand them to be. And that is not redemptive. But that's the power of that question. Do you really, Jonah, God asks, have a good, right, and true reason for your anger? And the power of that question, when it detonates, men, you and I sometimes do this, he went on silence mode. He, did, he muted. He didn't even say anything. He didn't even respond to God. He just walked away. In fact, look what it says. Without responding, he went east of the city, and he waits to see if God would destroy Nineveh. In other words, here's what Jonah's doing, and we, we hit this two weeks ago. It's just a quick review. What Jonah's doing is, God, did I change your mind? Did my anger, was my anger successful at making you do what I want? Because I really want them to be destroyed. And so he goes east of the city, and he sits there, and he waits to see if, in fact, his anger worked. There's always a reason for our anger. And you remember, we saw that the word east, biblically, is a metaphor for the dry, barren world that is just desperate for God's saving love you got to say that again, because you know what? If you're like me, when I'm listening to somebody preach, I'm in and out. I, I struggle with maintaining focus. I get it. So let me say it again to help you. Ready? you got to focus on this. This is huge. This is the four-wheel drive going in low now. We are chewing our way up the driveway. When the Bible uses east, often it is a metaphor for the world which is dry and barren and does not enjoy the blessings in the presence of God. We're talking about the world. He goes east into the place where God's blessed presence isn't. Now some of you are going, well, wait a minute, I thought God was omnipresent, meaning he's present in all places at one time. I didn't say in the east where God isn't. I said in the east where God's blessed presence in it. He's not blessing in the east. Yes, in some form, the water and the rain falls on the righteous as well as the unrighteous, but the favor of God that God gives to his people is in the west. And you go into east of the city, Jonah takes himself out of the protection of God, the blessing blessing of God, the favor of God, the joy of God, the strength of God. He is out in the dry, barren wilderness, and it's only his strength, and he's going to learn it's not enough. Now think of the world. You ready? We're chewing up the driveway. Think of the word world for a minute. It's all through the Bible, Old Testament and New. This is one where you've got to get some doctrine in your head. You've got to learn this if you're going to understand the Bible. Think of the meaning of world. That is the place that is in opposition to God. Think of the word world, and now go to John chapter 3 with me up on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Over and over, the word world. 
What does it mean? There is a meta-narrative. Now think of this. Look at me for a second. There is a grand story. Meta-narrative means grand story. There is an awesome arc, story arc, that runs from Genesis to Revelation. You can, there's a couple ways you can think of this. You ready? Remember, we're in a living room, and I'm just having a conversation with you. Let me just tell you, there's a couple ways to understand that. Think of a string with 66 beads on it, and that's the Bible. The string is the one story, and every one of those 66 books in the Bible, Old Testament and New, tell you about that story. Or you can think of a diamond that's got 66 incredible, beautiful, perfect facets. And you go, you're going to turn the diamond this way, and you're going to see that facet, and you're going to go to Malachi, the book of Malachi, and go, wow, well, I've never seen the story, the meta narrative, the grand arc. I've never seen it like that before. And then you're going to go to Matthew, and you're going to see it even more clearly because now God is really revealing the story with absolute clarity. And then you're going to get to Paul's facets of the story, all 13 of them, and the New Testament. And all of a sudden, you go, wow, these are really exciting. These are rich. These are hard to understand. But man, when you grab them, when you fathom them, there is life-giving doctrine in these. Listen, think of a diamond. That's the gospel. And it's got 66 facets. That's 66 books in the Bible. And every single book of the Bible is all about this grand story. Listen, don't think of these as 66 separate, disparate, disconnected books. That's not what they are. That's all one story, and every single one of the books gives you a different angle of it. And here's the story. This is the fourth most important thing I'm going to tell you. Here's the story. God created all that there is in the universe and beyond. Are you ready? That statement's not done. He created it for his glory. He created it because it reflects his glory. He created it in a way that when you look at the stars that are billions of light years away, that reflects the extensiveness, the awe-inspiring complexity of God, that you can never plumb the depths of God. He is absolutely unknowable to the extent of fullness. You will learn that you can, you, you will know that you can keep learning about God billions and billions and billions of years into eternity, you're always going to keep learning more about God. He is inexhaustibly rich in who he is. But you can see that through creation. It's similar to the pleasure and the joy that an artist gets when he or she creates a masterpiece, similar to the glory um, that, uh, that fills the awe of those who observe it, and they think that artist is amazing. So listen, you're seeing a masterpiece, a work of art, and you are filled with awe, and listen, it doesn't end with the work of art, it goes to the one who created it. That's what gl the glory of God seen through creation does. Now watch this. The greatest work of God, his magnus opus, his magnum opus, you got to get this, was his creation of you and I. His creation of humanity. That's his greatest work. 
who alone, we are alone able to reflect his image, his character, and his attributes. Your lovely dog does not image God. Your cat, let's move on before I get myself in trouble. Listen, the only thing that carries and bears the image of God is a human being, his greatest creation. Adam and Eve, when unsullied, untarnished, not dirtied by sin, reflected. Here's how they reflected. They reflected like living mirrors the glorious essence of God. They brought him fame. They brought him glory. You want to see what God is like? Then look at Adam and Eve. They didn't sin yet. They're like mirrors, and you can see God in them. But then all of a sudden, sin, that inward impulse of rebellion, moved the very first couple, Adam and Eve, to defy God, fracturing the image of God in mankind. And that mirror of glory has spiderweb cracks all through it. The damage that resulted from that, you can see it in war, you can see it in racism, you can see it in illiteracy, you can see it in suffering, death, pain, the lack of water for children, the lack of food for wanderers. Listen, the remnants and the impact of sin has fractured everything. Landslides, tsunamis, comets that hit other planets. None of that would have happened before sin came into this universe. Everything worked in perfect order, reflecting God's glory. In the instant that Adam and Eve sinned, and this is so important theologically, please grab hold of this, in that very instant, the world, all of creation, became inhospitable. It became opposed to God with pain and thorns and thistles. That's the whole world defying God now. So what is the world? The world is the energetic opposition to God, and it is everywhere around us. It opposes God. And if you stop to listen... And just observe, it is evident in our popular movies, it's evident in our art, in our music, everywhere. Let me give you some lyrics from, he actually pronounces his name either Hozier or, Ho, or Hosier. He had 2014's most popular, popularly played song on Spotify. You know it probably, Take Me to Church. Here's just one part of the lyrics. You're going to see the fracture that sin brought in this oppositional energetic movement towards God. He writes this, he sings this. Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. Offer me that deathless death. Good God, let me give you my life. Now, if you tear that song apart, you listen to him tell you, and I listened to an interview by him, what he's really doing is not so much lobbying a, an insult towards religion, it's to institutions that tell you how humanity has to live. That was really a lot of it for Russia, who said that gay people are on the level of pedophiliacs. So the movie that goes with that song has two guys kissing, 
But listen, this was the most popularly played song in 2014. It, it, it touched into a visceral impulse that resonated in millions of people worldwide. He's from Dublin. This hit outside of America. This guy was wildly popular, even though nobody knew about him before, because the power of these lyrics equated the force that walks through the heart, lives in the heart of the world. The beauty and the hope of the gospel is this. You ready? Our loving God would win his creation back. And he would do it by dying for the world. He would do it by saving people from sin. The power of salvation streamed from that terrible cursed cross upon which the Son of God died and those, John 3, 16, who believe in him, trusting him to save them from the power and the penalty of their sins. Listen, they're going to be forgiven. The, the charges are going to be dropped and they're going to be made right with God. Can you remember with me two wonderful, beautiful, awesome words found in the Bible? I'm actually just going to give you one. I'm going to give you a quick glimpse at the other one. The first one is justified. All right, this is where you got to put it down in four-wheel drive low. This is where you take your naps, right? Don't, don't do that. Try to understand this. This is so important. It's a biblical word, but it's a lofty, beautiful concept doctrinally. Justified means simply, most simply this. Here it is, you ready? It means to be, to be declared right with God. That's it. And it happens in an instant when a person trusts in Christ for salvation. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a gift. It's grace. Through the redemption of the, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So justification is a free gift of grace and you receive it by faith. In other words, the moment you you put your faith in Christ, that he has forgiven you of your sins, he died for them, in that moment, God drops the charges, declares you right to be in his family, right with him, he doesn't look at you as a sin bearer, he looks at you as righteous as Jesus Christ. You are declared right with God because of faith in Christ Jesus. But your redemption doesn't end with salvation any more than that story arc that string that diamond ends with salvation or redemption listen remember god created everything there was sin fractured it they fell into sin he is redeeming them through the power of the cross his death burial and resurrection but why what's the purpose because he he's restoring all things to himself we live in the restoration age God is restoring everything to himself. In that kingdom of God, now listen, here's an image. Jesus gave it to us. The kingdom of God, really tiny like a mustard seed, yet can grow into a tree 
that is so big provides so much sh- shade that tree or birds rather find their ways to nest in them. So here's this tiny little seed that could produce this in proportion gargantuan tree, and that's the kingdom of God. This is the creation that was corrupted by the fall that Christ began to redeem, and he's in the process of restoring, and he's restoring it to himself. And listen, this is the kingdom of God. It's growing, it is enlarging, it is gathering momentum. Momentum and people are being swept into it and they're coming into it through the church or coming into it through Christ into the church you see God is on a mission and his mission is to restore his creation and it's going to culminate finally and fully at the sunset of human history when listen this is what revelation says he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth and he will have restored all things to himself And the very power of this redemptive leading to restoration process is the death and the resurrection of Christ. And here's what Colossians says. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, restoring them, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus had to die And in dying, he saved the world. And Christian, brother and sister, this is critical. You and I, listen, this is absolutely critical. You and I participate in this restoration. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are the priesthood of all believers. That means that when you got somebody that does not believe in Jesus and their life is wallowing in despair, you got the power through prayer to actually bring them to the foot of Christ and to bring the mercy of God to them. That's what a priest does. They're a bridge builder. We are participating in the restoration of all things. We are ambassadors to the lost. If you don't speak the gospel, they can't come to faith. We are light bearers to those who live in darkness. We are those ministers of reconciliation. We are helping people to find their way to the God who loves them. But listen, we have got a problem, and it's a big one. And all of a sudden, we get to return back to that selfish bent that we all struggle with. You ready? Here it is. If left to ourselves. Christians will always return to self-directed living. And it will prevent you and it will prevent me from embarking on the mission of God to restore his creation to himself. Listen, you will not tell people about Jesus. You will not even care about them because you cannot love if you're loving yourself. Maxie Dunham once said and wrote, I'm a Christian, I love this, I'm a Christian to help prevent me from being myself. And that seems to me exactly right. Nothing seems to me me more ill-conceived than the apparent general optimism about human nature, which is now so pervasive, my vision of evil is of pure and unbridled egotism, and we live in an age which appears systematically to encourage this. So listen, you get to Hosier, who has said in his interview, I have strong opinions about the church. Listen, I do too, and I hope you do too. We ought to have strong opinions. 
But his strong opinions have been informed by the pain that he's been through, been informed by his own perspective, his own philosophy. Listen, Christian, you've got to get your strong opinion informed by the word of God. You get back to Jonah, and we find our prophet in quote-unquote unbridled egotism. Full-blown self-centeredness, off-mission, waiting for the city of Nineveh to be destroyed. Now listen how ironic this is. He preached the good news, but he lived the exact opposite. And he was completely useless to God. Do you realize that there are churches that are completely useless to God? Here's what it looks like. Jesus says in Revelation, early part of it, that I will come and I will remove my lamp from that church. A church that will not preach the word of God, Jesus will not stay in their midst as a lamp. And he will leave. They're a useless church. I'd rather throw you out. I'd rather throw you up. You're either hot or cold. You're lukewarm. I'd rather you be hot or cold because you're neither. I'm going to vomit you, is what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus. He says that to individual believers. Listen, if you're not living on mission, if your focus is on you, which confessedly mine often is, and God has to bring me down off that throne over and over, but if you stay on that throne and you say, God, the throne fits me, you either move over or get off, you're going to be useless to him because you're not on mission. Yes, Jonah was saved. Did you hear that? Yes, he was a saint. He'd been rescued out of the world, justified, and declared right with God. But fame had brought pride, and pride produced a self-directed life which muted his mouth with a loveless, graceless heart that rendered him ineffective in the mission of God. His self-directed heart was on a collision course with a sovereign, loving God. And God is going to reclaim his servant. Now, I talked about being justified simply means to be made right with God. Now, listen, here's the other word I want to give you. You won't see it on your screen. You're not going to see it up on the PowerPoint. The other word is sanctified. Now, there's a whole world of theology in that word, and I'm not going to have time to tell you. Let me just tell you this. Sanctification is the ongoing process. Listen, where God brings you off the throne over and over and over, puts you in the form of a servant so that you begin to love being one, and he begins to change you more and more to be like Jesus. That's sanctification. And he does it through his word. He does it by the power of the Spirit of God that dwells in you and produces fruit and makes you feel guilty when you do something that God doesn't want you to do. That's what guilt is. It's God's warning bell saying, hey, stop doing that. It's going to ruin your life, and I'm not really that pleased. Let me give you instead a good faith with a good conscience, meaning that I'm producing my fruit in you. That's the power of the Holy Spirit as he uses his word, and he brings you in the midst of a community of saints that say, I want to speak into your life. I want to help chisel you. I want to encourage you. I want to bear your burden. I want to meet with you all the more as the day approaches of Christ's return, and I want to do it together in life-on-life relationships. That's sanctification. And now we're ready, and it's going to be very brief, to look at our final part of this series, 
Jonah goes out of the city into the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade. Now I'm going to end with this because I'm going to pick it up. It was originally going to be what I was going to talk tonight about, talk today about. But I'm going to end with this. I'm going to give you a little bit of a snapshot, a preview of what we're going to hit next week. We're going to hit it hard for the next two weeks. That booth, sukkah in the Hebrew, tabernacle in our English, that shade that it provided, listen, that's the Christian who says, I don't want to live your way, God. I want to live my way. And it can bring you temporary shade, but it will never be enough. And it can bring you temporary happiness, but it will never be enough. God says, that's not going to work. I'm going to give you something better. And it's going to aim you toward Jesus Christ. And then he's going to take it away from you. He's going to take it away from Jonah to show him how foolish it is to tell God, I can manage my life better than you. All of that's in store for us. Let me sum this up with this. God is on a collision course with self-directed Christians because he is sovereign and loving and he is going to win. And the way he's going to win, listen to this, is he's going to extend his hand of grace and he is going to walk you off that throne so that you want to be at the base, so that you want to serve him, so that you are filled with a love for God and a love for people, and you want to get on mission. And the mission of God is this. He is taking a creation that has fallen by sin, and he is redeeming it, and he is restoring it to himself so that that creation, you and I more than any other, can reflect beautifully his glory. And the people can come into your life, and you can go into their lives, and you can be ministers of reconciliation. You can be ambassadors of the truth. They can see this is what God is like. This is how merciful he is. This is how gracious he is. This is what it means to be loved by God. And they're going to see it through you, Christian, when you're on mission and it was something that Jonah completely forfeited and God will get him back. Amen.